All right, good to be with you again. Uh, we have different folks meeting at different times on all of our campuses. We're excited about some of the progress that we're making. Uh, let me uh, start with this. We launched uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago now, um, and dealt with the idea of character. So let me, let me illustrate um, just kind of a recap of what, what we're thinking and try to give you a, a mental image of it. I think we have a picture of an iceberg here. Um, here's what, here's what we'd, we'd love to say, is that character is, they'll always say an iceberg is so much bigger underneath the water that turns out to not be a cliche, that actually turns out to be true. So we would say this bottom part, which we are not spending as much time on, we acknowledged it, we dealt with it, is the idea of character. The part above the waterline would be equivalent to our leadership values, and here's why that's important for us. Character, obviously most important. Leadership values is what we see above the waterline. And here's what we mean by that, is that these are tangible expressions that can be measured, right? So it's really important for us, if we're going to talk about leadership values, that we have values that you can see, that you can touch, that you can feel, that at the end of a month with my employer, I can say, look, this value I did, and here's how I did this value. And they could say, no, you didn't. I mean, we could actually have a real objective discussion. It's going to have some subjectivity to it, but we could say, yes, you did this. No, you did not. After a year, this value did happen. It did not happen because these are our observable, tangible values that are above the waterline that can be seen, that can be tested. Um, as Bill talked last week about owning the cause, Big, big issue, he said, is the word they. The word they has got to go. He said, I've got to own the cause in such a way that now we're in a we position. Um, I love the picture of Lincoln, the before and the after. I've actually had people say that about our church. They're like, man, when was this picture taken? I was like, oh, it's just a few years ago. They're like, God, what did this church do to you? I was like, either the church or my kids, one of the two, I don't know. And that we are willing to suffer for a cause knowing that there's a future reward. This week we'll talk about uh, the second value, the idea called, uh, that we've labeled action-oriented. The idea of being action-oriented. And so this is not, nothing's new to us, okay? We've just compiled for our context, all right? That's, that's all that there is, and we've relabeled some things for our context, narrowed it down. But a few years ago, so we steal from different places. A few years ago I had Knox White, the mayor of Greenville, come speak to our staff. And so um, afterwards, we were talking, and we did a little Q&A time, and I said, you know, one of the things I'd love to hear from you um, is uh, you've done so many things in downtown Greenville. Um, I'd love for you to talk about vision. I'd love for you to talk about what does it mean for you? What, how do you define vision? Um, what, does that, what does that mean to you? And he said, well, I guess here's the thing, is there's a lot greater visionaries than I am. He goes, and you can't use what's happened downtown and label that as vision and put that on me. He said, everything that we've done downtown, those are all in file folders in a cabinet somewhere. He goes, all, all we did was pull the file folder out and go, huh, rails to trails. Seems like a good idea. He goes, what our office has done and some of our predecessors is just execute on the ideas that people came up with. He goes, we've had these ideas for some of them for decades he goes, at least for years, that people have created these ideas. He goes, but there was no one to really execute, or maybe it wasn't the right time to act on it. He says, so we have acted on it. He says, so vision is really important, but action is really important, too. If you go, which one's more important? He said, we're not having that discussion. We're just saying both. Both are really, really critical. And I thought that would open my mind to some thoughts and ideas, because I'm not strong visionary. I'm much more of an executor. So that opened my mind to, okay, so there's, there's roles for all of us to play here, and execution's really, really important. Here's what I mean by action-oriented, and I'll give you some big ideas around it. 
To be action-oriented means that today something's going to move. It's not very sophisticated. It may be a big move. It may be an incremental move. Most likely, it will be incremental. It will be very small. It will not be perceptible to those on the outside. But today, something will change, will move, there will action will be taken. And the, the big ideas around this are is that movement is critical to leadership. It is part of the definition of leadership. It is critical. And you go, well, only good movement should be part of leadership. <clears throat> that's not the world we live in. I mean, I would love it if that's the world that I lived in. That any movement that we take would be good movement and we would wait to make sure that it's good before we move. That would be a great world to live in, but that is not the world that we are living in. So it is mainly movement and then we'll talk about how good, how bad, and what kind of adjustments we have to make. We cannot, another idea that surrounds it is that we cannot fully predict the future. So we often have to take action to help create it. We cannot fully predict it. So we're going to have to participate in creating the future. It doesn't mean we can control the future or completely create it, but it, we're going to have to help create it. We're going to have to participate in it so we can have a glimpse of where it's going. And then many times, this is a challenging one, especially in Christian circles, is that many times we cannot find out any more information. There's no more research to do or to be had, so we have to move. The next amount of information will only come to us after we move. The only research that's left to be done will happen after we take a step. Now this is because we have, we have non-Christians who come to our church and who are part of Men's Roundtable, but it is also a Christian idea, all right, in a Christian setting. So let me just say, for Christians, this is a very difficult reality, very difficult concept. We tend to make things real holy, so then they have to stick around, so then you can't do away with them, you can't change them, you can't go take new territory, because we're living on holy ground. So, you know, if you went back 150 years ago, the courthouse, the theater, the church... Um, any organization in a city or a town had pews because that's all that there was. You kind of cut a log in half, the top part of it made the back, the bottom part made the seat. This was just a simple, easy way to do it. Well then, because the church bought into that idea, then pews became holy. And so now, you, and there's nothing wrong with having pews. We have a campus that has pews. nothing wrong with that. But if you say, we have to have pews, well, that's really just a product of a certain era of time where it was a practical necessity, and then churches make things like that holy, then they're stuck with it. And sometimes you get stuck with a tradition, it's fine, no big deal. But other times it can hold you back. So we've got to be careful what we make holy. Certain things are holy, they can't be touched. Other things can be touched. Or we struggle with this because we want assurance of success. That is not for us. This is not the world we're living in. You go, well, if I follow God, I do what God says, and we're going to have the assurance of success. That is not true. That is a myth. It's not true. I'll get to it in a minute. And then another one is, we legitimately sometimes don't want to disobey. I don't want to disobey God. I don't want to go do the wrong thing. So then we have to get clear on what's a moral issue, what's an amoral issue. Where is there no freedom? I've got to stay with inside the lines, walk the narrow path, straight and narrow is the way. And then there's other times where this is not a moral issue. We have freedom, right? We have freedom. The irony being is that I, am, I live in a world of pastors who write papers in seminary on God's sovereignty, who <clears throat> write books on God's sovereignty, who preach sermons on God's sovereignty, 
And then within the idea of sovereignty, they are making the argument that God is not just sovereign and all-powerful, but that He is good. You would think people who wrote books, preached sermons about God being all-powerful and being good, that those people would experience the most freedom. But in my culture, they do not. They are bound up. Like people who live in a mansion, but only explore the bathroom. They live in the bathroom and only explore the bathroom and the closet. Rather than having the freedom to explore this whole mansion. Since God is good and he's sovereign over this whole mansion, like Adam and Eve, I get to go explore. Go find that. Go name it. Go figure it out. Whatever you say the name of that will be, that's what that will be. Just go explore. Go figure it out. Go discover. Go find. But in my culture, it is very bound up, very tight. So I just think that's an interesting observation. The opposite of this value is someone who withdraws, overanalyzes, is fearful, and fearful is the big one in our culture, I think, procrastinates, which is a laziness kind of issue, hides behind, especially in Christian culture, hides behind the phrase, we got to make sure we do it right. I was meeting with some uh, a church planner not too long ago, and he said, well, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to make sure we got to do it right. And then a little bit later, he said, and then we're gonna, we would like to plant, we'd like to get started, but we, we just got to check on some things, make sure we do it right. And then a little bit later, we got to get the core group together, and we're going to do this, we're going to make sure we do it right. And about the fourth time, he said, I was like, hey, bro, you got it. Man, who can bear the burden? Who can do that? But you have no idea. We don't know. You don't know if this, any of this is going to work. This is right. You already know more than you're going. You're never going to know more than you know right now. You're not going to be able to get it right. Getting it right does not need, need to be an objective. It doesn't need to be on the screen as this is, this is one of our goals. We've got to get it right. Because you don't even know what that is yet. So you can imagine in seminary, this is, some of this is intuitive to me. Some of it is learned. But in seminary, I was a lost puppy. Because everybody's sitting around talking about things that they were never going to do. And so I would leave very discouraged at the end of the day. We talked, 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 talked. There was no real action. That's fine for theologians and for people who are going to write books. But for people who are going to lead, that is not an option. You go, where's the biblical idea? Proverbs 14, 23 is one idea. I thank my friend Charles Wall for this. This is a great little proverb that supports this idea. Is that work brings profit, but mere talk leads to poverty. The idea is not exalting one thing over the other in the sense of saying we should never talk, but the, but the comparison of talk versus work is that there is great value in action. A biblical character that you could go research, Numbers 13, Caleb, is that when the spies go into Israel for 40 days, they come back and say the land is great, and here are the, we have to carry the grapes out on a pole, and it was amazing in there, but then there were some pretty big dudes. It's kind of scary. These Philistines are rough. And so 10 of the 12 say, we, we can't go. We'll get killed. We don't want to get killed. And the other two, and Caleb's one of them, he goes, hey, we, God said go, we can go. It's not just that he's taking action for action's sake, and, it's, and it is that he's obeying, but here's what he's doing in his obedience. Is he's, and this is why I think it's important, is that he deals with his fear. Because we go, I'll obey God. You, you will obey God if you can deal with your fear. Now, a lot of the things that we would talk about, about taking action in the home or at work, or in my ministry, or whatever, those may not be things where God has said, hey, go take the land, go do that. God may not be doing that. But, but what's common is i got to deal with my fear. 
whether it's a moral mandate or whether it's something I'm going to figure out. In either case, i got to deal with my fear. And Caleb is able to deal with his fear and trust God and go beyond it. The, um, I want to encourage you. that we, I don't know if it's over-spiritualizing or de-spiritualizing when we think about these things. Whatever truth we find, it's God's. Right? So when we look at these values, if it's, if, it's, if it's part of the world that he's created, then these are his values, whether we see them in the scripture. So gravity is something that God created. We should study it as something that God created. Even if a non-Christian discovers gravity, it doesn't taint gravity. Okay, It's still God's. We still go, I've oh, got to obey that. Can't fly today because gravity. God created that. So I can't just flap my arms. And so as we talk about these ideas, even though we go, well, that's not really that spiritual, it is spiritual because something God created. My fear is we have a culture that has watched videos, been to conferences, read books, received lots of education, evaluated others, but never really done or produced anything. As a culture, especially a young culture, we become experts at talking and hanging out and relating. But accomplishing and producing are almost negative ideas in our culture. So let me give you some principles. I think I got about eight of them. And I am going to go way shorter than Bill White. I'm, I think I am. Um, let me give you eight principles. These are Some of this is just experience. It's experience and opinion and wisdom and things that have borne out in my context, in the context of others, reading Watching, listening, working with other folks. So let me, the first one is this. This is all around being action-oriented. The first idea is you're going to have to make peace with risk and failure. We're not talking about being reckless. We're not talking about being unwise. Seek counsel. Wisdom is found in the presence of many counselors. All of that. Authority of the word on moral issues overrides everything. We're not talking about moral issues. But we're going to have to make peace with risk and failure. Here's the thing. I am not trying to avoid failure and only have success. That is not the goal. I need both. Now, obviously, personally, I want more success than I have failure. That is a personal agenda that I have. But I need both. The world is not as black and white or bipolar polarized as I would like to think. One of my professors in college challenged me on this issue. I could only think about moral issues. He said, Matt, I need you to stop thinking about moral issues for a minute. The world is gray. It is not black and white outside of your religious context. He goes, there are nuances to the world that you have to understand. The great decisions are made around nuance. And he could have been speaking German, Chinese, Japanese, any language, because I could not understand what he was saying. But this is one where I'm saying I want success, but I'm having to embrace failure at the same time. It's a nuanced idea. There's some tension here. There's some ambiguity here. Failure is part of finding direction. Some of the great directional shifts and moves that we make are because of failure. It is a humbling factor that keeps me from overextending next time. When I get chopped, I get humbled here. I go, oh, wait, I'm really not larger than life. I really can't do whatever I want to do. So the next adventure is, is tempered in a way to help me be wise. It just it humbles you. It's very important. Moses experiences the same thing. He starts off his ministry with tremendous failure. And to distinguish this, probably comes from Andy Stanley, first place I heard it, is that in this idea of risk and failure, understand that certainty and clarity are two different things. We can have clarity about what we're doing without certainty about how it's going to go. So a few years ago, we decided to launch a campus um, in um, Simpsonville, 
Malden, Fountain Inn, we call it Golden Strip. We wanted to do it intentionally different than we had ever done before. We wanted to bring in a staff person that was not on our staff previously. We wanted to see if we could do that. That was an experiment. We wanted to launch in a little different place. So that was all new to us. And so people would say to me, we announced it. Someone said to me, hey, so this is going to work? I was like, oh, oh, I, I, I don't know. Be like, you mean we're going to launch out and try to do something we've never done before? We don't know if it's going to work. I was like, oh, no, I don't know. 50-50 at best. Who knows? Right? And they said, well, but you seem so certain. I was like, well, no, I'm not certain. It's just clear. Is that this, we're going to go here. This is the date. These are some things we're going to do. This is the person that we found. We're really excited about this. And so we have clarity around here's what we're going to do. That clarity is not ensure that it's going to be successful. We don't know the successful piece yet. We don't know what God's plans are. This may work. He said, Matthew 28, go. So we have this kind of mandate to go. We're not ensured that under every, every expression of our going is going to work. That is not what he has guaranteed us. Second idea. We want to fail quickly and cheaply. I thank Jeff Lane um, over research and development at Millican and Spartanburg for this idea. Fail quickly and cheaply. There is almost always the ability to take a small step right now. Like Israel stepped into the Jordan and it rolled back. If it doesn't roll back, I don't know if they keep walking. But if it, since it does roll back, so much easier to take a second step. And I found this to be true in life. It's to be able to take a small step. It might be making a phone call. It might be sending an email. It might be spending $100. There might, there's some way to take a small step to move towards it. And we were in, a, in a, a group of other churches talking about different ideas, things they were doing and things we were doing and just sharing. And they were thinking about having another campus and the thing they kept saying was, you know, we know you got to go big or go home, and you got to spend this on video, and you got to spend this on a building, and you got to buy this, and you know, it's just like $4 million, and we just don't know, because you know, we've got to go big and go home. And after that meeting, I just pulled the guy aside. I was like, bro, I, I don't think you have to go big or go home. I was like, in fact, that doesn't seem like a good idea at all. I would say, go small and see what happens. Now, we got to make sure it works. I was like, well, if you get started and you'll see if there's any energy, then you can put more money into it. And I gave him three or four illustrations in our context of how we didn't go big or go home. Started small, see what, was, see what God was doing. Surely God can work through a small thing. We launched a ministry in Allendale County, poorest county in South Carolina, a long time ago, many years ago. And I got up on a Sunday morning and I, and I explained it and I explained how it was not a social gospel, how it was an overflow of the gospel. They were taking the gospel there. We were serving people with no strings attached, yet it was opening doors for us. I went through the whole thing. And so um, a lady pulled me aside after and she goes, are you sure this is going to work? I was like, I'm absolutely sure. This doesn't violate the first principle. I said, but I'm absolutely sure. She goes, how do you know? I was like, because we've already been there for a year. I didn't, I didn't stand up on stage in front of our whole church and go, hey, I got an idea. We're going to go full force to another place we've never been. No, no, no. A year before that, we went down as a small group and began to explore the idea. Got a little bit of traction. Then we sent a small group of adults down there to do some ministry, work together over spring break. And then we started some things here, and we started small building relationships and connecting. We started sending small teams. So we had already been working there a year by the time we told our congregation. So we could say, we know this is going to work because it's already working. We started small. We're letting it build. Third idea, this is, this is the big one for me, it's, it's this idea of act, evaluate, and react. Act, evaluate, and react. 
there's a book called Action Trumps Everything. And they articulate this idea in, in trying, to, trying to dismantle what an entrepreneur is. This is, their, this is their research and their understanding. And so I'll just read a quote to you, page 68. I think we have a slide for it. Action leads to evidence. This is a big, big concept. Action leads to evidence, which becomes fodder for new thinking, which leads to more evidence, which becomes additional fodder for even more thinking, which leads to even more action, which, in the same pattern, over and over. And I have found this idea to be true, is that taking a step puts you in a position to be able to evaluate and gain more information, more research, so that you can take another step. So I just held a retreat for a handful of pastors from around our state, a way for them to be with their peers, get away with their wife, completely disconnect. And so we had some ideas about how that should go. Halfway through the the retreat, it gets clear to me, okay, oh, this is how this should go. And so, like, I can't do anything about it now, but we had to take a step to find out. So next year, we have it for a different group. I know how we'll do that differently, but you, but you don't know until you actually start. My, my biggest, if I go way back on this illustration, so indulge me for a minute. I'm a seminary student living in Texas. I've been married a year. My wife and I live with a, um, a woman who was a national speaker for an organization. She has gone three weeks out of the month. She was there one week. So, but she was dynamic. She was a dynamic leader. She was a visionary communicator. She's one of the most powerful people that I have ever known. And we're riding down there. I'm taking her to the, to the airport one day to fly out. And she goes, Matt, see that guy right there cleaning windows? That's what you need to do. You need to clean windows just like that. And so I was like, okay. And, and I was working at Oshman's making four twenty-five an hour. I was like, okay, anything's better than what I'm doing now. Because I'm not making any money now. Surprising that the government would even notice that I was doing anything. They keep taking it out of that check. So I, I went by and I started watching these guys clean windows. And they're real clean when they got done. And they're charging like a quarter of pain. I was like, well, there's no money in that. I can't compete with this guy because this window's clean when he gets done. And he only got a quarter for it. I, there's no, no entry for me here. So I found a building that um, was completely trashed. It was dirty. I went in. I was like, hey, the owner of the building, yeah, right here. All right. So I was like, hey, your windows are dirty. I clean windows. I wonder if I clean your windows. He goes, absolutely, they're a mess. I don't know why they don't ever ask me for this. I would love it if you clean windows. I was like, all right, I'll do it. I'll do it. I gave him a price. And he said, hey, could you clean the windows on my house? I was like, yes, absolutely. I can because you do do houses too, right? I was like, yes. And in a sense, I had done a house before when I worked construction in high school. So yes, technically I wasn't lying. I said, but here's the thing, I can't get to any of this for two weeks. <laughs> I, mean, I had nothing to do. I can't get there for two weeks, right? He goes, okay, okay, that's fine, that's fine. I understand you're real busy. I got in my car and I thought, okay, if I got two jobs in a day, I don't have any equipment. I can't afford any equipment, I'm broke. So hopefully in two weeks I can get some more jobs that would help pay for my equipment. I at least break even when this is all over. So I'm driving down the road thinking, how are you going to get more jobs? How are you going to get more jobs? How are you going to get more jobs? I was like, I need a business card. It's the only idea that popped in my head. So I pulled right into the store. I went, I was like, hey, you do business cards? He goes, yeah, I, I do business cards. I was like, all right, I need business cards. He goes, the least I can sell you is $500. It costs $15, but 1000 you can get for 20 I was like, give me the 15 This is never going to work. Just give me the $500. i will save the 5 bucks. <laughs> so I literally got 500 business cards. I was like, hey, I need those tomorrow. He goes, I can't produce... He goes, I have other people ahead of you. I was like, all right, so I, I need them tomorrow. I got to have them. I, he goes, it'll be next week. I was like, I can't have it next week. I got to have it tomorrow. 
And I said, any of those other people said that they need their business cards tomorrow? He goes, well, a few. I was like, well, I'm one of them. I need it tomorrow. He goes, all right, day after tomorrow. So I got the business cards day after tomorrow. So I got the cards. I'm riding down the road looking at the cards going, oh, this is, I'm not, not a lot of movement here. I drive into a subdivision, and I get out, and I pull out my business card. I'm looking at this house, and there's a flyer for window cleaning on the mailbox. I pull it off. The flyer's bigger than mine. It's color. Mine's white. It's got a picture. Mine's boring. It's got everything. This is the future. I'm, I'm nothing, right? But I look on it. It says free estimates. I look on my card, and actually, hey, this guy said, put free estimates on So I put free estimates on there. I was like, that's stupid. Does anybody charge for estimates? Is that what anybody does? Does anybody charge for estimates? So I thought, okay, so what's going to happen is she's going to get my card and this flyer. Obviously, she's going to choose the flyer because it looks better. Call them out here. They're going to give an estimate. Go back. She's going to set up another appointment. They're going to come back out and do it. I'm going to cut out the whole process. I'll never even get a shot at this. And it just dawned on me, standing in front of this house, I thought, unless I give the estimate now. Went and got a pen out of my car and I wrote on it. I thought, what would I do this house for? What would make me miserable if I did this house for? What would I be okay for? I wrote on the card, outside, $60, in and out, 90 And I went up and I stuck it in the door jam. And so I walked through the whole neighborhood. I was like, I'm going to give one hour to doing this. I walked through this whole neighborhood. I'm 23 years old. Walked through this whole neighborhood. I put out about 100 cards. And I just wrote, 75, 125. 70, 110. I'm just making stuff up. I'm like, let's give a sampling of all price levels. So who knows what's going to hit. Put them on. Drove home so I could study. I walk in. There used to be these things called answering machines. It's like your voicemail, but it was a plastic box that sat at your house, hooked to your phone. It, was, it said 15. Hit the button. Hey, got your card. Love you. Come clean my windows. Hey, I got this card from you. I just want to make sure this is the price. Uh, come clean my windows. I have 15, 14 or 15 messages saying, hey, come clean my windows. And so, and that launched, I ultimately did over 500 homes over the next two and a half years. And so that paid for my seminary. Compared to seminary students, I was stinking wealthy. I mean, I wouldn't have people to my house. They're like, you have a TV? I mean, we were wealthy, right? And God blessed. I was able to do my school, pay for everything, graduate on time, all of that. And I would say, but here's what happened. I'm riding to the airport with Carol, and she goes, hey, you should, you should clean windows. See that guy cleaning windows? I never, I cleaned one commercial building. It was that first one. Never cleaned another one. It was all houses after that. It just started with someone going, hey, you, you should go do that. And me going and watching that guy. But I can't do this. This will never work. But maybe I can do that. And here's, here's the best thing that I have to say. This, this phrase right here. Is that your best decision will come after you do something. The next thing that you do, once that's done, you're in a position to make your best decision. Some, there are some brilliant people who can think through everything before anything happens. That's true. Those people are out there. But for most of us, your most brilliant insight, your best decision will happen after you have done something. After you have taken the next step. You're like, well, I don't know where the next step leads to. It doesn't matter. Taking the next step puts you in a position to be able to make a new decision. Which leads to the fourth idea, is that action 
leads to other opportunities. Now, this is very related to three, but it is a little bit distinct. Is that action leads to other opportunities. When I asked Knox White about the vision deal downtown, he goes, here's what you have to understand. And he basically coined this idea. He goes, any, any vision that you accomplish sets the table for new vision. He said, we never get the baseball stadium without the bridge. He goes, the baseball stadium never is never a thought, whether it's the Braves or Boston. He goes, it doesn't matter. He goes, whether it was one team or the other, that never comes downtown if we don't have the bridge. He goes, once we have the bridge, it reset everything downtown, and we began to think in a completely different way. He goes, a lot of the ideas and options never come to us until we reset the table. Um, John Meacham wrote a book called The Art of Power about Jefferson. And there's a quote in there, and I have lost it. That's why I'm saying it. I'm going to use you. Is that there's a quote in there where Jefferson describes this idea perfectly and succinctly. He says, once you take a step, he goes, it resets the horizon. Once you make a decision and you move in a direction, it resets everything. And there's a new, there's a new horizon to look at, and you get to make new decisions. I will not read this book again. It's massive. $50 for you if you find this quote for me. Right? Just based off the little bit of information I gave you. I would really appreciate it. But I can't do it. I can't read that book again, right? Our downtown campus started as a way to offload college students and evolved into a ministry that legitimately reaches people downtown. It was never initially an idea, oh, we're going to reach people downtown. Who would be so presumptuous to think that we could go reach people downtown? I, that's not a thought that would occur to me, but I can get some college students out of here free up seats on one of our campuses, and so we'll put them at the handlebar. Who knew that was going to take root and create another opportunity that would manifest itself later in a 150-year-old church in downtown Greenville? No one knew. The fifth idea is that you got to do something today. you got to take a step today. This is particularly helpful when you face a issue, an issue that is massive, that is large, that is bigger than what you can do, that is more than what you can do in a day, in a week, in a month, maybe even a year. Some projects take uh, months and months. Some take years. And so you have to say, I cannot solve this problem today. I will do one thing today. I will either do the most important thing today or I will do the thing that I can do today. So I moved into a house that was quite the fixer-upper. And the more I got into it, the more I realized this house has all kinds of problems that I have to fix. And some of them were substantial. They needed to be dealt with. They were going to create structural problems. And some of them were just cosmetic. And so I, I'm working a full-time job. I don't have time to do this. So here's, here's what happened. Now, I'll admit there's some sickness to this, and my wife would be the first one to tell you. But I did at least one project on that house every day for 520 days. And I decided today's the day, and it was hard, right? It's like Rivkin. How are you going to stop? Right? So it's like today's the day. I'm not going to do that. And at least one project. A project might be 30 seconds. It might be 30 minutes. It might be three hours. Depends on what you got. How many resources you got. How much time you got. On the, on the, the day that I had to drive to my family to Myrtle Beach for my grandmother's funeral, I got up that morning 30 minutes early. I did my little project. Got my family in the car. Drove all the way to Myrtle Beach. Had a funeral. Drove all the way back. Went to bed. Got up the next day. Preached. Okay, I mean, just, it's just, you just got to take a step every single day. Um, um, good to great, Jim Collins, I think Bill mentioned this book last week. One of his principles is the idea of a flywheel. This massive thing, stone, steel, that you cannot just push it. You have to give all this effort and just and barely push, and it barely moves. But then it's moving, 
You went from not moving to moving, and then you grab it again, and you give it a little more. And so over time of consistently pushing with effort in the same direction over a long period of time, the same decision in the same direction, the same action, the same movement, over a long period, it begins to move. And as it gets faster, the momentum builds, and it gets faster and faster and stronger and stronger. At the end of 10 years, 15 years, 30 years, people look at it and be like, look how powerful. But it didn't start out that way. And so they are small decisions. So let me read to you from page 165 this quote, and you can follow along. We can give all this to you if you want it. There was no single, talking about companies that succeeded well versus those that did not, that sustained it. There was no single defining action, no grand program, no one killer innovation, no solitary lucky break, no wrenching revolution. Good to great comes about by a cumulative process. And I think that's really important. Incremental, cumulative. Step by step, action by action, decision by decision, turn by turn of the flywheel. That adds up to sustained and spectacular results. But it's not sexy in the beginning. It is not engaging. It is, there's not a lot of hype in the beginning. But over time, people are drawn to it because momentum means something to people. It's attractive to people. On another page 174, he says this, Tremendous power exists in the fact of continued improvement and the delivery of results. Continued improvement. It might be large, but it's usually not. Usually it's small, incremental, over time. Most people don't notice it, but over time, because it it accumulates, they do. Point to tangible accomplishments, however incremental at first, and show how these steps fit into the context of the overall concept that will work. When you do this in such a way that people see and feel the buildup of momentum, they will line up with enthusiasm. And it does not mean that every one of those decisions goes well, that it all works, but there is continued movement. The sixth idea is that your meetings, this is from Peter Drucker, um, your meetings must degenerate into work. We love that word, degenerate, because you hardly ever get to use it in a positive way. So meetings must degenerate into work. Peter Drucker. Talk is worthless without a decision. Decisions are worthless without action. So there has got to be a bloody trail between talking and decisions and acting. You have got to see these things connected. And we have to be making decisions at different levels all the time. There are some decisions that take a year to make. So we need to have that level. There are some decisions that take a month to make. There are some decisions that take a week to make. And there are some decisions that take a minute to make. And so we need to be making all of those all the time. And so sometimes we have other churches come to say, hey, this looks like y'all make all these decisions all the time. And they're like, you just decided to do that. Like, No, we've been talking about that for like 18 months. That's been in the harbor for two years. We've been talking about it. But there's other decisions that, you could, that are happening. And so there, there's a, a broad scale of what's happening. Things are being, can come out at different levels at different times, but we can see the movement be energized by it. Um, a meeting must have a list of things that we have just gotten done, and that needs to transition into things that have to be done. And you don't get to come back to this meeting until those things are done. Or we have to hunt you down and shoot you. But you have to do the things that we say in this meeting are going to be done. When you leave here, you have to go do those things. You have to go execute on that. You can report back if it didn't go well or did go well. But those things have to be done. Seventh idea. Some action starts with destruction. A lot of times the action that needs to take is we need to do away with what's actually happening. 
What we're doing is not working, it is not right, it is activity, but it is not productive. It is not effective. It is not accomplishing anything, and it needs to stop. But what we are afraid of sometimes is creating the void. Because we do not want a void where there's nothing here. But, that, but we have to. We have to many times create the moment and the void where there's, where there's nothing so we can see the clean landscape and then we can make a better decision about what we should do. Sometimes you cannot decide what the next step is till you get the thing that's in front of you out of the way. So that, that just has to, to go away. So in 97, we had just launched a church. We've been going a year and a half and our small groups, our community groups were broken and we kept trying to fix it, kept trying to fix it, kept trying to fix it. Band-aid here, band-aid here. And so one, I spent a week praying about it. And then I thought, I mean, I don't know what God's telling me. Is this my emotions? Is God doing? But I just know we got stopped. I stood up and I said, hey, all our small groups, all our community groups, they're stopped. We shut down. And so we shut in, in our church, since small groups are not just something that we do, that's the, kind of the heart of what we do, is the big deal. So we shut everything down for at least four months. And as soon as we shut them down and we got the plate clear, we were able to get some real clarity about a new direction for us that would help build the DNA of our church. Not just an activity to go do, but something that, that, that we got real clarity. And you see this in other areas. This girl's got this crazy boyfriend. She's like, well, I mean, I'd, he's, he's terrible. I know he's terrible for me. All right, well, then, then be done with him. Well, if God would bring me someone else, then I'd be done. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. Because you got to be done with him first. You cut him loose. You got to live in the void for a while, and then God brings someone else. He's not going to do a replacement thing. That doesn't work. Your clarity's not good. Your vision's not good. Eighth idea, last one, is you have to flee to the battle. This is obviously taken from David and Goliath. Is that once David gets clear with Saul, I'm not wearing that armor that you've got. I'm gonna. Um, I got my stones. I'm clear on what I'm gonna do. Once he's clear. He's gone. He says he flees to the battle. And what I think is important for us is that it's the acknowledgement of your fear is not the same as obeying your fear. The presence of fear is not the same as being enslaved to it or immobilized by it. It is not that some people have fear and some people don't have fear. Everybody has fear. The issue is what are we going to do with that? How are we going to manage that? And over a decade ago, I spent a whole night, a whole Wednesday night awake. I mean, I bet I slept 15 minutes the whole night because the next morning we were going to do our first, the first time we ever did something called roundtable. We had never done a men's thing like that before. All these men had signed up to come. I was not confident in the material. I was not, I was not clear on, I just, I, and I thought to myself at 2 in the morning, how did I get myself into this? 200 men come in the morning. I have no idea. I do not even understand how this is going to work. I mean, it's just very unlike me to not have more control. And so, but the issue was, I thought, well, what else are we going to do? Right? If God's good and he's sovereign, even if this is a failure, I mean, if I'm saying I don't have a future with him, right, under his sovereignty and his goodness, I can't fail with him, then I definitely don't have a future without him. Right? If I, don't, if I can't trust him and have a future with him, underneath all of that umbrella, then I, I don't have anything without him. Moving, even in spite of our fear. And so once we are clear, we, go to, we move to the battle. We move quickly. So the big idea, leadership's about movement. The only way to know the future is to be a part of helping create it. We can start small, move, then evaluate, react, and then act again. 
Let me give you some questions to think about. And you, you don't have to when you get in your group. You don't have to. Whatever is heavy or weighty, you can deal with that issue. But let me give you some things to start the conversation. I think fear is a big one. So how, how fearful are you when it comes to making decisions, taking action? And I'm putting those things together. Decisions and action, they're not exactly the same, but they're really close. And then within that idea is, for some things, you're not fearful at all. That's what's interesting. There are some decisions that you have to make. There are some actions that you take. It doesn't strike any fear. And, it's, and it can be quite risky or bold. But then there's other things that may not even seem as risky or bold, but are very fearful for you. It might be more task-oriented. It might be more relational. It might be things that deal with money. It might be things that deal with security. It might be, you, who knows, right? So what are the things within that that are, that, that are unique to you? Second idea. Which of the eight principles just d- doesn't make any sense to you? And you need clarity. Because for somebody else in the group, because of personality and experience, that those principles are real clear to them. So let them explain and articulate, and then vice versa. There'll be something that's not clear to that person that is clear to you. You get to articulate that, kind of re-explain it. Maybe where I missed something, left something out. So what principles don't make sense to you? Ask for clarity. Third idea. Which of the principles come naturally to you? In a good way. Which one of these that, that you're like, totally. I, I didn't have language for it, but that's, that's totally what I do. Or I have different language for it, which is fine. And here's how, I, here's how I live that out. And so then, so what are the ones that come naturally to you? And then how has it been a benefit? How have you seen it take action, take root? And, and how have you seen it work? And then the fourth idea. Which, which principle is hard for you? And, you? and you need to take a step. You need to work on it. Acknowledge it, own it, think through it, and go out. That's something. And I can actually see a place where I need to go to work where I can, go, I can go implement that idea. Because if you can get clarity on, hey, here's one that I'm weak on, and look, there's this, there happens to be, crazy enough, there happens to be a situation in my life right now where I could implement that idea. Then here's what I would say. What are you going to do? Flee to the battle. That's what you got to do. You go, I might die. Right, but here's the thing. If God's good and he's sovereign, and you die on his watch, it, well, you definitely didn't have a future without him. If you're going to die with him, you're definitely going to die without him. Right? And most of what we're talking about, they have anything to do with death. Right? It's just fear that holds us hostage. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are sovereign and you are good. And we can experience real freedom. Not the freedom to be unholy or the freedom to be reckless um, or disregarding of you and ignoring moral issues or moral mandates or clear truth from the scriptures. But in all the areas of life where you tell us like Adam and Eve to go work, to go figure it out. Father, we can trust you. We can embrace success, we can embrace failure, we can move and be, and be blessed and experience the sting of failure and also experience the joy of success. But Father, we, we do not want to stay where we are. We want to be able to move and create impact and influence. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.